Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The confrontation between China and America is one of the biggest stories today. Western countries from Europe to the Indo-Pacific are discussing how to de-risk and deter conflict with China. But one country has been ahead of the game in figuring out how to deal with a changing China, and that's its neighbor, Japan. I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and this week I'm joined by The Economist's Tokyo Bureau Chief, Noah Snyder, for a two-part series on China and Japan. This week, we're looking at how Japan realized that China was becoming a security risk years before the U.S. did. Next week, we'll be asking, how is Japan changing its policies towards China now? This is Drum Tower from The Economist. Noah, hello. Welcome to Drum Tower. Hey, Alice. Thanks for having me. So, Noah, David is away this week, but I am excited to be doing this series with you, especially after I saw you recently in person a few weeks ago when I was in Tokyo uh, on a work trip. Although on the side of the work, we did have a lot of very good and reasonably priced sushi. It is one of the, the great joys of being a correspondent in Japan uh, when you can take people out to lunch, call it a work lunch and have sushi at the same time. Uh, but it's great to be on Drum Tower. Long time listener, first time caller, I guess you might say. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. So I was there in Tokyo to attend a security conference. It was called the Munich Leaders Meeting, basically a smaller version of the Munich Security Conference. And there were a lot of Europeans and Americans there talking about Zeitenwende in the Indo-Pacific. And now this word, Zeitenwende, it's a, it's a German word. And as we all know, it's what Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz used to describe Germany's turning point after the invasion of Ukraine. And basically, this conference is about the idea that Asia is also going through its own turning point, and in particular, Japan may be going through this pivot in ramping up defense spending and changing its security policy. And the reason for this turning point is another phrase that I was hearing a lot of people say at this conference and that Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio has been repeating recently, which is that Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. And when Japanese officials say that, I think what they really mean is that there is real potential for a conflict with China in the future. Correct? That's right, Alice. I think it doesn't take much to read between the lines there. It is a reference to China, and it's a reference in particular to the risks of a clash over Taiwan. And it's something that's really worrying Japan, and that's become just a bit more palpable or believable in the wake of the Ukraine crisis. I mean, just the fact that a war like that could happen has become a much more real possibility. And so Japan has been making some big changes in its security policies. They revised their national security strategy at the end of last year, and they're planning to spend over 60% more on defense in the coming years to get up to sort of 2% of GDP on defense spending, a NATO benchmark. There's even talk of linking East Asia's security with European security in, in more direct ways. I mean, maybe even NATO exploring opening an office here in Tokyo. 
Yeah, so in all those ways, it does feel like this is a turning point, right? But the surprising thing that I learned after staying for the rest of the week, spending time with you and with many of the Japanese China experts, was that actually Japan's security pivot was already underway long before the invasion of Ukraine and long before these you know, Western security conferences started coming to Tokyo. And that is why we wanted to do this series on Drum Tower. And I'm really glad you came and that we're going to have a chance to do this series because I think it's a really fascinating story and it's an important story about Japan's experience with China and the relationship between Japan and China, the world's second and third largest economies, Japan being America's key security ally in Asia. In part, it's a story about the ways in which today's big geopolitical news, namely the, the relationship between U.S. and China, it's not happening in a vacuum. There are other players in the region, other countries with their own agency and their own policies and their own histories and relationships that are unfolding in parallel to this growing great power competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the themes that came out of our interviews was that a lot of Western powers in Europe and in the U.S. are just realizing now that China is a security threat. But for Japan, that moment came much earlier, right? That's totally right. And I think that's why maybe turning point isn't quite the right phrase to use with respect to Japan's security policies. I think really the better way to think about it is as an acceleration. They've been on this course and the war in Ukraine has really encouraged them to ramp up the speed and intensity with which they're moving. But they've been basically moving in this direction and seeing China in this way for really more than a decade now. Yeah, and one of the people we met who told us about his firsthand experience with Japan shifting its policies, but then seeing that the rest of the West was a little bit slow to come around, was Japan's former ambassador to the U.S., Sasai Kenichiro. He was ambassador from 2012 to 2018, which is the second Obama administration and then the beginning of the Trump administration. And he told us about how he was in Washington during the Obama years, and Japan started warning quite early that China is a security threat. We were running ahead of the United States in terms of grasping mm. the nature of Chinese development at the time. So Ambassador Sasai was telling us about how he was trying to talk to American officials about how China was changing. But at that time, the U.S. leadership was still thinking that China was going to change and that economic development was going to lead to political opening. At the time, I think American government was still expecting China to be in line with uh, their hope, their economic development and openness would uh, pave the way for a more open political system and try to form some of the uh, strategic relationship which is based upon not necessarily totally the same values, but also more open attitude, mm -hmm. I would say, in terms of political values in and institutional values. Yeah, and I think the best way to tell the story of how and why Japan got to that turning point and got to that point of understanding that China was becoming a security threat, that China was becoming more assertive, even before Xi Jinping came to power, we need to look back in history a bit to the previous war between Japan and China. Yeah, and that might seem like quite a long way back to go, but actually World War II and in particular the Second Sino-Japanese War is still such a big deal in China today and still has a lot of impact on the China-Japan relationship. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we could go even further back into history, I mean, back to early diplomatic delegations from the, the third century. I mean, the history between Japan and China is hundreds, if not thousands of years of 
interdependence and autonomy and mutual respect and suspicion, a lot of attraction, a lot of repulsion, conflict, and also convergence. But in the modern period, really everything that's happening today happens in the shadow, I think, of, as you say, of the Sino-Japanese War and of the Second World War. And Japan's invasion, occupation, and the atrocities Japan committed in the process in China have really shaped the relationship up through the present day. Yeah, even now in China, there's still a lot of resentment over Japan's wartime atrocities. And I think if we were going to pick just one to talk about, it would have to be the Nanjing Massacre or, or the rape of Nanjing in 1937. But again, Japanese power was too great. And after a battle lasting but a few days, the city fell to the invaders. Japanese soldiers came to Nanjing, they looted the city, they raped tens of thousands of civilians, and they killed many more. The helpless populace was trapped by the city walls and could not flee. It's one of the most horrific moments of World War II. Experts debate how many people were killed during that time, but the estimates range from 100 to 300,000 deaths. Yeah, and it's still a complicated memory for Japan today. I mean, for some, a memory that's denied. For others, a memory that continues to cause guilt and pangs of conscience. It's those kinds of memories that have continued to shape the relationship with China. Yeah, and I mean, that part of history is certainly something that comes up quite a lot in China. When you're talking to just someone on the street, if you bring up Japan, it's it's just very close to people's memories, even though they didn't live through it themselves. And Chinese officials have repeatedly demanded that the Japanese government needs to apologize and not only apologize, but apologize in a more sincere way, in a deeper way to show that they are truly regretful. In 2016, the foreign ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunying said she wanted to emphasize that Japan invaded its Asian neighbors and that the perpetrator and victim countries could only reconcile if the perpetrator had a, a sincere reflection rather than calculated performances. And interestingly, it actually took a while for the two countries to get to the point of even talking about things like apologies and reckoning with the past. In the immediate post-war period, both were really just engaged in trying to rebuild, trying to emerge from the wreckage, in Japan's case, under the American occupation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, right after World War II ended, China went back to civil war between the nationalists and the communists. The communists won in 1949, and then came the Mao Zedong era, which came along with famine and purges and cultural revolution. And it was only toward the end of that era in 1972 that Japan and China normalized relations. And at that point, China was really destitute after all the things that had happened under Mao Zedong. But Japan had become Asia's top economic power. And in fact, it had the second largest GDP in the world. In a moment, we'll hear why a microwave dumpling was a key part of Japan's plan to modernize China's economy. But first, we wanted to remind listeners that you can read much more about China and Japan in The Economist. You'll need to be a subscriber, so if you're not already, we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
So Noah, we were just talking about how Japan rebuilt after the Second World War and normalized ties with China in 1972. And then there was this key moment in the relationship between the two. That's right. So the normalization comes right on the heels of actually America's normalization of relations with China that same year. And a few years later, in 1978, China's leader, Deng Xiaoping, comes to Japan seeking investment. And he goes on this tour of these top Japanese companies. He goes to visit Nippon Steel, a big steel producer. He goes to what's then called Matsushita Denki, which turns into the company we now know as Panasonic. He visits their factories, he sees their technology, and he asks them to expand their business into China. Actually, just a few days after you were in Tokyo, Alice, I went down to Osaka to meet with a man named Aoki Shunichiro. He's in his 80s now, but still sprightly. He's actually the president now of a foreign language school. And he took some time out to have lunch with me and my colleague, Moika Ida, to talk about the really important role he played in the relationship between Japan and China. And he was the head of Panasonic's first office in China, really ran the company's business in Beijing for several decades after Deng came to Japan seeking that investment. And he kind of recounted for me this moment when then came to Japan and what happened on that fateful visit. He talked about how Deng came to a factory where Matsushita was producing color TVs. And he kind of marveled at this piece of modern technology. And he asked the then president of Matsushita Electronics, who is, of course, named Matsushita-san, he said, please help China modernize. And Matsushita replies saying, we'll do anything. If it's for China, we'll do anything. Wow. I remember reading about this famous story about how Deng Xiaoping went on this visit. And didn't he heat up a dumpling in a Panasonic microwave and compliment it and say something like, it tastes good and like nice microwave or something like that. Exactly. There was a dumpling and a microwave involved in the charm offensive. And I think it really encapsulates the gap that had opened up between China and Japan in, in the wake of the war. I mean, as China was dealing, as you said, with civil war and the cultural revolution, Japan was growing and developing and reaching new technological heights. And so there was a kind of imbalance at that point when they come back together in, in the 1970s. And the Japanese companies become really enmeshed in China. And they're there in part because of a sense of guilt over what they did during the war and, and a feeling of responsibility for helping China pick itself back up. But also, as Aoki-san said quite honestly to me, because they saw a huge market opportunity. And so China became really, really important to Japanese companies and to the Japanese economy. And they stayed invested in China even throughout really turbulent moments, including the Tiananmen Square massacre in, in 1989. Oh, wow. Was he there at that time, Mr. Aoki? He was, and he told me this really remarkable story about what it was like in their office at the time, about how the most senior Chinese employee in the company made this impassioned speech to the Japanese folks who'd been based there in Beijing, kind of imploring them to stay on. And Aoki-san was asked to translate because he spoke the best Mandarin. 
he talked about this being a critical moment and told them to please stay and complete your mission here in China, even if your families back home in Japan are worried. And Panasonic did stay, and it was a controversial decision at the time. A lot of other firms, especially Western firms, pulled out or governments imposed sanctions, but many Japanese companies hung on. So Aokisan also told me about how that decision really paid off with the passage of time and how people, especially inside China, appreciated the decision to stay and how it bought the company a lot of goodwill that has continued even to this day. Panasonic still sells a lot of goods inside China. Wait, actually, come to think of it, I think I had a Panasonic microwave in Beijing when I was living there. So, How are the dumplings? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't microwave dumplings, but the microwave was good. <laughs> it worked really well. And I got it at a competitive price. So, But, you know, no, you know, we're talking about this, and it does make me think about parallels between Japan and the U.S. and their approaches to China. Because I know more about what happened in the U.S. after Tiananmen Square. There were sanctions and some companies pulled out. But I do also know that there was a discussion of whether China's most favored nation status, this favorable trading status, whether it should be linked to human rights. But, you know, within a few years, that outrage faded. And a lot of the American business community in particular was advocating very strongly for staying in China and not linking this trade status to human rights. And a lot of that, I think, was just out of concern for their own profits. So I'm curious if there is a parallel there with Japan, if in Japan, it also tends to be that the business community is the strongest advocate for staying close to China, regardless of what happens domestically. I think that's definitely the case. I mean, the Japanese government has always been a bit skeptical of sanctions as a policy tool in general, and they have all kinds of reasons they'll trot out to explain that. But behind all of that is certainly the influence of the business community, in particular when it comes to China. I mean, China is Japan's largest trading partner to this day, and it's really hard to overstate just how intertwined they are. Officials here, if you ask them about decoupling, they will shake their heads and laugh because they know that decoupling with China is mission impossible, as one put it to me recently. But you know, up until now, we've been talking about this dynamic where it was like China was asking Japan for help. Japan was feeling guilty that its companies were going over and investing. But at some point, that dynamic changed, right? And at some point, China overtook Japan and took that spot as the second largest GDP and the major economic power. Exactly. And this is really sort of bringing us up to the point at which the view of China from Japan starts to change. And I think one of the key triggers of that is when China formally overtakes Japan as the world's second largest economy, which happens by 2011. Even in the lead up to that, as China was rising and growing more powerful, I think you could see domestically in China that the government was changing its tone. Like it wasn't so much things helping having the dumplings. In China, the government often was using history to stoke up nationalist fervor. I remember in 2005, I was in Shanghai at that time, and there were these huge anti-Japanese protests across China. Boycott Japanese products! I hate the Japanese! What happened was that 
In Japan, there was a history textbook that had been approved that whitewashed some of its wartime crimes. And, and in China, people were, you know, attacking Japanese cars and throwing things at Japanese restaurants, even if they were owned by Chinese people. There was this real violence on the streets and outrage where people were being surrounded by angry crowds and they would have to be saying like, I'm not Japanese, please let me go, don't attack me. And I remember being there, I was actually in high school at that time, I remember I was told stay home because you don't know what's going to happen out on the streets. But I think what's interesting is that at that time, you could already see that the Chinese government was kind of giving tacit approval to these protests. But then also when they got too big and when they became too grassroots and people were organizing marches on their own, then you could see that the government really pulled it back. I kind of remember these anti-Japanese protests as an early example of how the Chinese government was able to ramp up nationalism and then roll it back to use it as a weapon almost and to use it for its own purposes. Yeah, and then I think you see that same dynamic really reach a peak again around the same time as the economies are changing place. So in 2010 and again in 2012, there are these clashes over what are, if we're being honest, really are just some uninhabited rocks in the East China Sea. But Japan calls them the Senkaku Islands. China calls them the... Diaoyudao. Diaoyudao. Yeah. Right. And so there's these two clashes one in 2010, when a, a Chinese fishing boat crashes into a Japanese Coast Guard boat and the Japanese arrest the captain and it becomes a huge diplomatic incident. And then again, two years later, when the Japanese government nationalizes the island and the two countries' forces are facing off in what looks like a really, really dangerous standoff. I was, was looking back through our archives and The Economist actually had a cover in September of 2012 that asked, could China and Japan really go to war over these? With an arrow pointing to these uninhabited rocks. And there's a little sea turtle in the corner that says, sadly, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> happily, they didn't. But it was a really, really tense time. Yeah. And I mean, we're laughing about that sea turtle cover. <laughs> but I mean, Diao Yudao or the Senkakus, they, they're really no laughing matter in China, right? Because if you go to a Chinese school, you get so much emotional teaching about all the atrocities that Japan committed. And the way I see it, it's like when these clashes happened, it was a chance for Chinese people to just release their emotion and this outrage that they had been getting from their education system for so many years. There was, at that time, this big nationalist outpouring online. And you could see not just, you know, like angry comments and people saying, you know, Diao Yudao is ours, it's Chinese, it's always been Chinese, but even also sometimes some just like very creative nationalist things like this one song, no, I, I'm going to have to play it for you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so basically that's a very patriotic and assertive rap that's like, yeah, 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 diao yu dao. Sorry, I'm not going to repeat it. But it's saying basically since ancient times, the diao yu islands have always been Chinese. It reminds me of some of the patriotic pro-Putin rap songs that I heard <laughs> while I was a correspondent in Moscow. Yeah, um, they should have a, a patriotic rap battle <laughs> at some point. But in all seriousness, this was a really historic turning point, certainly for Japan. I think many people here in Tokyo felt like this was the beginning of Chinese expansionism. This was a sense that China's 
power was growing and that it wanted to use it to assert its ambitions in a much more expansive way than before. And, and that's certainly what Ambassador Sasaya, who was in Washington around the time of that second clash, that's what he was telling us about when we went to see him. Around the time, I think the Japanese government and also Japanese people are beginning to perceive a different kind of China was emerging, including our increased dispute on the territory and not only East China Sea, but also South China Sea, and also beginning to perceive long-term objective mm. of building a military which is strong enough to compete, and also giving some influence to the discourse of geopolitics and regional peace yeah. and stability. And I think Japan really tried at the time to get America to see how China could be a security risk, not only for its neighbors on these kind of territorial issues, but more broadly, a challenger to the post-war system that had kept the peace in Asia for decades, and basically trying to warn people that China's changing, um, that they aren't necessarily going to play by America's rules or by the West's rules, that they have broader ambitions, and that they're seeking to revise some of the outcomes of the previous century's conflicts. Yeah, but what Ambassador Sasai told us also was that the U.S. perhaps was skeptical about whether this was really going to be a security challenge for the whole region or for the world, or if it was just China and Japan, you know, having their own tensions. And I, I think that is understandable when you look at the history of these two countries. I can understand why an official at that time might think, okay, maybe it's just about Japan. It's not that China's going to go for the whole region. Exactly. And there were, to be fair, lots of nationalists on the Japanese side who were putting fuel on the fires. So it was driven to some extent by this history and by the mutual suspicion and enmity between Japan and China. But there was another element of what happened then that I think, especially looking back at it today, was the weaponization of trade. So in the midst of this crisis, one of the things that happens is China halts exports of rare earth metals to Japan. And this is the kind of thing that then became pretty common practice for China with countries around the world. But it really hit Japan first. And when you look back now, I think it's really striking to realize that, you know, Japan was coming to these realizations way back, even before Xi Jinping came into power, right? I mean, by 2012, it was already clear that he was going to be the next president. But it was by now, you know, more than 10 years ago that they were already sounding the alarm and trying to tell other countries that China is changing. Exactly. And it really is these structural changes that first get Japan's attention. But you can see she waiting in the wings. In the second Senkaku crisis in 2012, he's tasked with leading the Chinese government response, and he's out there criticizing the Japanese, saying that they should rein in their behavior. And so I think there you also get a taste of where the relationship might head under Xi's rule as well. Yeah, and of course, soon Xi Jinping would officially come into power as China's president, and he would begin to really dramatically change things starting from inside China and, and then also in terms of how China engages with its neighbors in the region and with the rest of the world. We will be hearing more about that in next week's show, and we'll also be finding out how Japan is now trying to deal with this more assertive, aggressive China under Xi Jinping and whether the West could learn anything from Japan's strategies. So, Noah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And remember, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email drum at economist.com. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. We'll be back next week for the second episode of our look at China and Japan. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. 
Alicia Burl and Barkley Brandt produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Lee Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.